Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. Joining me today is Mark Godsey, the Daniel P. and Judith L. Carmichael Professor of Law at the University of Cincinnati College of Law and Director of the Lois and Richard Rosenthal Institute for Justice slash Ohio Innocence Project. Before co-founding the Ohio Innocence Project, he was a federal prosecutor for about six years. He is the author of 2017's Blind Injustice, a former prosecutor who exposes psychology and politics of wrongful convictions. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Mark. Hey, thanks for having me on. So before we get into some of the substance of the nature of wrongful convictions, I think it would be interesting to, if there's a story you might want to tell about what you're pursuing and what you were pursuing in Blind Injustice about especially the behavior of prosecutors and other members of the law enforcement side of this equation, but that, that made you sort of want to write this book. Well, um, you know, I was a prosecutor and then got into innocence work sort of by accident, um, where I was at a different university first that had an innocence project. And the Dean came to me on my first day of being a professor and said, um, you know, I, I want you to run this innocence project because the guy who runs it's on sabbatical this year and I'm, I'm new and I'm untenured. Can't really say no, but my attitude was, oh my God, there's no innocent people in prison. You know, what a joke. And I went to the first meeting and the students were, you know, crying about some guy they had visited in prison that they were convinced he was innocent. What a tragedy. And I grilled them about the case and was sort of doing internal eye rolls. You know, oh my God, this guy's totally guilty. And then DNA testing proved him innocent. Um, and so it was like a huge shock and, you know, then I met him as a person and I was really ashamed of myself cause I had sort of scoffed internally at his, at his pain that, you know, thinking he deserved it. And this, so, you know, it's a longer story than that, but through the year, I, I sort of realized that there's a lot of problems with the criminal justice system that people in the system like me, and I had come into the professor's job with a very prosecutorial mindset are sort of in denial about, um, so the next year I got a job at the University of Cincinnati and Ohio was the largest state without an innocence project. And I founded the one there and started doing innocence cases. And I'm just seeing this you know, sort of bizarre reaction from prosecutors and police, just like sort of deep denial. We would have cases where the evidence just overwhelmingly proved innocence and, you know, DNA evidence and everything else. And I'd go to court and they'd be standing up saying, oh, God, this guy's totally guilty. And at the one hand, I recognized it because that was me. On the other hand, I was having a hard time. Like, there's something weird going on. This is like, am I on Mars? Am I on candid camera? Like, what the heck's going on? Like, I just realized that because of my position, I was able to sort of understand the culture of prosecutor's office and police offices and, and why we're getting this resistance to reform. Um, and so I, I just, I wanted to tell the story and I wanted to try to explain it. So I spent years studying the psychology behind it, what causes people in systems and bureaucracies to dig in and be, you know, buy into myths and be in denial about reality. Um, and I found there were whole fields of, I'm not a psychologist, but I found there were whole fields of psychology. People had already studied this. And I'm like, oh, I thought I was inventing this, right? You know, this is well known how people do this. Um, and, and then, so I just, it took a number of years, but I put it all together and decided, look, I've got to, I, I need to explain this as much for me as anybody else. What is the cost to the prosecutor's offices if they, you know, capitulate? I'm not, you know, not even capitulate, at least, you know, not make absurd arguments. Like what, I mean, aside, I mean, it might cost them money if they're, you know, responding to your emotions from the innocence project, but like just personally, what's the, what's the cost that would make them be so recalcitrant and like maintaining the, the guilt of these people? 
You know, the weird thing is, is that in reality, there's not a cost, um, but in their heads, they can't see that. And I've tried to convince them like, look, do the right thing here. And I'm going to make you a flipping hero. And the media is going to make you a hero. And I can guarantee you the media is going to make you a hero because I talk to these reporters and they want you to do the right thing. Um, and very few of them can actually see that. They're so caught into this mentality. And I, I think it stems back to Dukakis versus Bush um, when, you know, Dukakis was governor of Massachusetts. And he, when he was governor, he let this guy named Willie Horton out on early release. And then he raped a woman. And so Bush made it the, can the central part of his campaign running for president. Dukakis is soft on crime and this woman was raped because of him. And so it made Democrats. I mean, after that, Bill Clinton said, we're going to out tough on crime, the Republicans. And so it made Democrats have this like Napoleon complex where they've just reflex of just, I have to be a hard ass. I have to act tough all the time. That's what pays off. You know, I just need to get my sound bite out there being a hard ass. And it's been sort of ingrained in them and, and prosecutors in general. They're all trying to avoid the 30-second soundbite where they can be painted as soft on crime in the next re-election. Um, and, and so, I mean, I think that's starting to change. You know, you're starting to have these. It's, it's funny because through the 90s, early 2000s, up until recently, in my opinion, Democrats were worse than Republicans um, because of this Bill Clinton. You know, and, and Kamala Harris was notoriously bad as a prosecutor. Um, I can go on and on about that. Um, but, you know, Democrats were awful. Um, and then, you know, I would be in the legislature trying to get bills passed and I could have a reasonable conversation with the Republicans. Uh, Democrats would, you know, chew my ass out and want me out of their office. Um, you know, on and on. Same with judges. And it's starting to change where now it's becoming cool again for the Democrats to be the progressive. You know, we're going to fight mass incarceration, which is good. Um but it's happening very slowly. So we're not seeing that much yet in Ohio, for example. It's some select cities where we're starting to get some reform-oriented Democrats in. Do you think there's something about people who decide to pursue – I mean, you would know, I guess, uh, because you were a prosecutor. But you know, you think about my time in law school and you got your defense attorney friends and you got your prosecutor friends, the ones who are interning at the prosecutor's office and the ones who are interning and eventually will probably go into those fields. Uh, you can see some differences between them, I would say, in my time in law school about political possibly. Um, like, Why do you think people become prosecutors? I'm sure it's for many different reasons, but, but is it because they really hate crime? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think that's true. I think it's sort of, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The people who are going into that are largely grew up in maybe authoritarian more type thinking or very law enforcement, you know, executive power um, possibly, but it's also the culture of prosecutors offices. And so even if you, because I didn't really go in that way. I mean, I, I was very much like, I started out looking for public to federal public defender jobs. Um, couldn't get one. Um, and I wanted to try cases. I, I ultimately wanted to be a, a professor, but I didn't want to be one of those professors that have never tried cases. So my my plan was I'm going to do five to 10 years of hardcore trial work, really know what I'm talking about before I go to the classroom. And I ended up as a prosecutor more because that gave me that opportunity. And I was sort of middle of the road on this issue. Um, but once you're there, I mean, it's very competitive in the sense that you're you know, you, everybody wants to look like a rock star, right? You get in a new job. You want to be the one that wins the cases. You want to be the one that gets the promotions. And 
you want to be the next assistant, first assistant prosecutor. You want to be the chief of this division. Um, and, and so you don't become that if you're cutting cases and losing cases and, and not flexing your muscles. So, you know, everybody starts flexing. And, you know, the funny thing is when I was a prosecutor, um, you know, if you went around and, 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 there was, you know, and talked about, oh, my God, this trial I've got coming up. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that maybe he didn't do it. It's, it's going to be a big stretch. Boy, I'm going to, I might lose. Um, you would, there was a name for somebody who had previously worked in the office. I won't say the name, but I'll just make it up like Harris. And they would go, oh, you're Harris in your case. Right. And it's sort of like the kid in high school to be like, oh, I failed that test. And then they get an A. Um, because, and what that shows is that if you win the tough cases that you're not supposed to win, that's a feather in your cap. Right. That shows that like you pulled this rabbit out of a hat. You're this miracle wizard of a prosecutor. And so it, ironically, the ones that maybe were on the margin where there's not a lot of evidence of guilt, those are the ones you want to win the most because it shows how great you are. Um, so it, once you get in there, it, there's this sort of perverse incentives of, of promotion and looking good and everything else that just further solidifies if there is, it was any sort of mentality that way coming in. It makes that, you know, crystallizes it. Well, you do have to have some level of evidence. I mean, it, the, the decision to indict, the decision to proceed forward with criminal charges, whether it's plea or, or all the way to a jury trial, you do have to have some evidence for the prosecutor to decide that this is likely that they did it or worth going forward with. And so the ones that they dismiss, those are the ones that they're kind of helping out. But after they make that decision, it seems like that they would continue to defend that decision all the way. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, I mean, and, and make no mistake about it. Like when I was a prosecutor, if you cut a case early, like you don't allow it to go forward, there's a political price for that. So, you know, there's pressures not to do that, even if the case is on the margins. I mean, there was a, a couple of instances I could tell long stories about it, but but one of them was with an agent who I'd become friends with because I'd done several cases for him. And I listened to the tapes, man, and I just did not think it was enough. Um, I thought the agent possibly entrapped the guy. He was being a little too aggressive when he was undercover. And I was scared to have that meeting. I mean, it made me nervous to tell him we're not going forward. And the dude stormed out of the room and would never talk to me again. Um, you know, and then I had a bad reputation with that agency. Um, and I have other stories like that too. So, I mean, it's, it's not like it's this neutral, oh, I'm going to look at the evidence and I'm going to decide, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down. You pay a political price when you cut cases that an agency or police department's worked a long time on. But then if you make the decision to go forward, there's really not a thought after that point to changing your position. It's not part of the vocabulary. I mean, at that point, the adversarial system is sunk in and, and you're kicked in and you're doing everything you can to win. So that's, you were talking as a federal prosecutor and you're the Southern district of New York, which is a very major jurisdiction, uh, that relationship between you and, and the law enforcement officers in particular, your offices, um, it seems like on a federal level, you know, this idea that we're the feds and we're super professional, but how is that on say, you know, a small County in Georgia or something where right, with the, with the law enforcement or the prosecutors, is it a similar type of intermixed relationship there? I, I would assume so, but I mean, I can't talk about Georgia, but when I went from being a federal prosecutor in New York and working with the FBI and these federal agencies, a lot of these agents had master's degrees and, you know, very educated and thoughtful people. Uh, I mean, I don't want to cast aspersions, but I came back and started doing innocence work in the state of Ohio and some rural counties. 
and it was like going into a movie set and dealing with these like characters out of central casting um you know very very different than um what i had dealt with in new york um and so you know georgia might be the same where you know it's just lockstep everybody's at the same mentality there's no nuance there's no you know everything's black and white um they have all the power i mean this all ultimately comes down to prosecutors and law enforcement have unfettered power i mean there's just no check on it whatsoever i mean we we've got cases where we exonerate this happens all over the country we exonerate someone and we demonstrate gross police misconduct cheating lying nothing happens to these cops you know unless it's something caught on videotape and like a george floyd situation there's all kinds of misconduct that goes on that's egregious that somebody wouldn't get away with in or other situations and nothing happens to them they continue working they retire with a pension um because there's no one watching the hen house right the you know, they're the ones that would arrest them <laughs> and and they're not going to arrest themselves um and and so when you have un and, and I saw this I, as a prosecutor I did political corruption cases and and I did counties that were all republican and counties that were all democrat and counties that were split down the middle you had a lot less corruption because people were keeping an eye on each other and it's when you have one political party in a county that's been entrenched for decades that's where I would see just the gross corruption um regardless of the party and um, it's the same when you have, you know, prosecutors, offices, police departments, basically unfettered power for decades on end. Um, that's, that doesn't comport with human nature, right? Things are not going to go well, but, but that's how we have it set up. It's always seemed to me that the incentives are pretty out of whack for the mentalities that we've been discussing. Let's talk about, you know, these are, and you say this over and over in the book, you know, these are mostly good people. I mean, they're definitely you know, real bad apple cops and, and prosecutors, but they're mostly people who think that they're doing something that's good and decent. Um, and part of that is capturing the bad guys and, and making sure they don't hurt people again. So it always seemed to me that if a cop is in the field and he like knows that that's the bad guy and he's, maybe he's right. Maybe his cop instincts are finely tuned as they always talk about on the stand. And so, you know, sure, you know, he violates the fourth amendment a bit, but at the end of the day, the bad guys in jail, you know, maybe if, especially if he's re a really bad guy. And so they, they, that's how they can go home. And one of the ways they can go home and keep their head held high that, that even if they kind of on the little edges, they kind of fudged a little bit, it still put someone who is very dangerous in jail. Right. So in the book, um, I didn't coin this phrase, but I'm talking about that in terms of noble cause corruption. So it's, you're, you're doing it for a good cause. Anybody can put themselves in a position let's take this violent crime where this beautiful person was murdered and the family is, is completely devastated and you're the officer in charge of it. it it's human nature. You can understand why if you, your instincts tell you somebody did it, you would cut corners and you would think, and it's not a crazy statement to say, yeah, it's the just thing to cut corners, right? That's understandable. Um, the problem is, is that, we are not as good at solving crimes. I'm talking we meaning human beings as we give ourselves credit for. And in reality, our instincts are often wrong. Um, and police aren't properly trained on how to combat tunnel vision and confirmation bias and all these psychological things that lead investigations astray. Um, and this is what leads to wrongful convictions. You know, a lot of these times it's not 
a cop or a prosecutor who's evil saying, wow, this guy's innocent, or I don't know if he is or not, but I don't care. I'm going to ram this through. They are going on their instincts and they do believe the person's guilty. They're just wrong. Um, and, and I think noble cause corruption is part of human nature. It's going to happen to some degree. But I think if you step back and, and you look at it and you see the number of wrongful convictions, we can do better. We can do better. And it's, and it's, it's not to say that somebody who's trying to solve a horrific crime and help the victim's family is a bad person, but we have to know our limitations. And these cops get to the point and it, and it becomes groupthink where they feed on each other, that basically they can just figure things out in a snap. Um, and they can't, and they're wrong a lot. Um, and, and we need to have more humility and, you know, we'll be able to do the right thing, but we'd be able to do it more carefully. Um, and recognize that if we don't do it more carefully, there's great human tragedy on the other side, which is destroying somebody's life and another family's life by sending somebody to prison for life or death row for a crime they didn't commit. It's happening far too often. So it's a balance. What about the judges in this situation? They're the actors in the system that's supposed to make things fair. Um, so are they living up to that task? I mean, no. So again, I was a federal prosecutor, so I was in the federal system. The judges are appointed for life. There's no, they don't have to run for re-election. And, you know, judges were known as having views. It's not like everybody was neutral. Like, you know, this is a pro-prosecution judge, or this is a pro-defense judge, or this judge has this quirk. But you never got the sense that they were acting from outside pressures, right? They were just basically acting true to themselves. And you might not have liked who they were, but um, when I came back and started doing innocence cases in Ohio, it was culture shock for me that there was basically no separation of powers and the judge was the same as the prosecutor and they were politically aligned. I many times clear they were talking ex parte, which they're not supposed to be doing with me not there and, you know, lining up the case to get it how they wanted it. And, you know, an experienced attorney in this field, maybe it was Barry Sheck. I can't remember who, when I first started said, look, no matter how strong your evidence is, you're likely to lose in the trial court. That's the prosecutor's home jurisdiction. They practice in front of that judge all the time. And you get a better shake, better chance the further you get away from that, you know, courts of appeals and ultimately federal court and habeas. And I found that to be, sadly, very true. Um, I can remember one of my first cases, the prosecutors were engaging in all kinds of just petty, petty stuff. Um, and, you know, moving to strike my motions because the certificate of service said U.S. mail. And I'd emailed and faxed it to them, you know, and just, just nonsense like that. And they, they continued asking, I had an innocent guy, innocent guy in prison. I, I ended up winning that case because the evidence was overwhelming, filed a brief with, you know, an inch thick of documents supporting that this was a wrongful conviction. And they got their 30 days to respond came on the 30th day. They asked for another 30 days when that 30 days came another 30 days. And it went on for, on, and I started objecting. This is ridiculous. This guy's in prison. He deserves a hearing. And I remember the judge said in a, in a conference, are you suggesting that my prosecutors would unfairly delay a case? And, and then throughout the entire case, he would say, my prosecutor, you know, draw it out, my prosecutors. And I put that in the book because it's just, you know, it showed like, you know, he saw himself on the same team and he made it clear and he denied our motion despite the overwhelming evidence. And we had DNA evidence and the word, the letters DNA never appeared together in his opinion. And we eventually had to win in the court of appeals once we got it away from the, the politics of the situation. Do you think it matters that a significant or a disproportionate number of judges 
are prosecutors in their background as opposed to coming from the defense attorney side? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they're just, they're just coming in. It's, I mean, I don't know what the percentage is. It's very high, probably 80% in Ohio. Um, and, and, you know, and they're often handpicked. So for decades in some counties in Ohio, if you're a judge and you did something that upset the prosecutor, the prosecutor, the elected prosecutor, who's by the way, is the most powerful person in most counties. Um, every judge wants their endorsement at re-election time. Everybody wants their endorsement. Um, so you can't, you can't upset them. So if you have a ruling where you follow the law and you throw out a case or you exonerate someone that makes the prosecutor upset, the prosecutor may handpick one of their own prosecutors to run against you. And I've seen this happen time and time again, put the power of the party behind it and drive that judge out of office. These judges know that, right? So this, this idea that, um, the public has of, you know, this fair, balanced, justice is blind, what we talk about in the classroom. I mean, look, I teach criminal law, criminal procedure, evidence. You know, I was hired just to be a regular professor. I still do that gig. I got about eight years into that teaching criminal law where I stand in front of the class and go through the elements of homicide, the elements of rape and all the things they need to know for the bar. And it, it got to the point where it was just totally intellectually dishonest because it doesn't work like that. And in the real world and in criminal procedure, we're talking about the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, and police have to get a search warrant and there has to be probable cause. And you can sit in a classroom and go, should the judge grant this search warrant? And you can have an honest, objective debate, yes or no. In reality, the, pro the cops are getting that search warrant. <laughs> and so I, I got to the point where I had to say, like, look, yeah, we can talk about this, but sadly, this is how it's actually going to work. Um, once I made that switch, it was funny because, uh, you know, um, my evaluations, I got about 10 or 20% of the class that started writing things like get off your damn soapbox. You know, you're the cynical, crusty old professor. That's just jaded. That's not how it really works. So, you know, a lot of kids won't accept it. Um, but it is reality. Now, taking a step back, um, in working in the innocence project, uh, what, how do you get your cases or, I mean, they, how do they usually come to you? And then when you start evaluating them, what are the kind of red flags you're usually looking for as you move forward and say, this is a good one we can pursue? I get to ask that question a lot and it's very tough. Um, the, the inmates write to us and we send them a questionnaire and they have to fill it out. It's, it's very tough to explain. And, and, and I guess the, the best way to explain it, and I don't know if this is helpful or not, is you imagine a busy newspaper that you see in the movies with a million little desks and the phone's ringing all day and all these reporters and all these tips are coming in. But only a certain number of these tips end up being an, an article in the newspaper. And so the reporters are getting these tips and they're quickly making a few calls. They're trying to see, does this story have legs? And that's sort of the way it is. Like these are coming in and they're put on a conveyor belt and they start moving toward the fin finish line, which is being filed in court. And various things will come and cause and swing by and cause that file to be knocked off. And eventually some of them make it to the end, which means everything we're doing, it keeps verifying the claim of innocence. There's nothing that caused it to be knocked off. And, you know, so on top of that, though, I mean, there, there, there are clear things that will make a case stand out. So, you know, one of the big problems is we've got a lot of people in prison on junk science where they were, you know, convicted on this, what we now know as bogus arson science or, you know, hair comparison or bite mark and all these things. So, 
you know, the students are trained at the beginning, you get a letter in from somebody that the primary evidence against them was this one of these junk science categories. We're immediately going to put that to the top of the cat. You know, it doesn't mean we're going to file on it, but we're going to give that one a very close look. Um, we, you, you tend to find um, in the cases that have stayed on the conveyor belt for a while, that it just continues looking fishy as you continue digging in everything the inmate told us in his application is checking out. Um, and you, you know, you start seeing these red flags where you start getting FOIA requests and you're getting the police records back and the witnesses have changed their story left and right. And it's, the fish starts to smell worse and worse. Um, often in those type of cases, you end up finding what are called Brady violations based on the U S Supreme court case, Brady versus Maryland. The police have to turn over exculpatory evidence, evidence they find during the investigation that helps the defendant. And the percentage of time when we get a case that starts to smell really bad, when it starts to smell really bad, that's when they really sometimes have to cut corners to get a conviction. And we start digging in and really demanding or suing for the public records that they're not turning over. Um, we end up finding that there was a much better suspect, that uh, there was all this evidence pointing to somebody else. Um, but you know what? They'd already gone out and arrested our guy. And they'd already got on TV and patted themselves on the back that they'd solved the crime. And then all this other evidence comes in that makes somebody else more likely the person who did it. And that's all just shoved under the rug. So, uh, you know, another part of it is, is, is when these cases continue to smell, really trying to dig down to get to the bottom of, of why it smells and what happened and how that sausage was made. You mentioned this phrase before, but you kind of just described it, but the, the tunnel vision aspect of this, but, but that can end up infecting multiple layers of the of the prosecution's decisions and people involved in the system, correct? Yeah. I mean, tunnel vision is human nature. I mean, so our brain can't process everything. Um, and we now understand this a lot better than we did even 10, 15 years ago. But we use filters um, to help filter out sort of – that's why people perceive different the same incident differently. Um, and we don't remember everything either, right? We're selectively remembering what we deem as important. And our, our pre-existing beliefs have a lot to do with how we perceive evidence and how we remember evidence. Um, and I've created a short video um, on a series of different psychological factors from the book, um, which does a much better job of explaining it. But you know, if you have a pre-existing belief, for instance, this person's guilty, um, and witnesses come to you um, and they give you information that contradicts your belief. You're much likely, much more likely to label that person. Oh, that guy's lying. Right. And somebody is giving you information that confirms what you believe. And you got all excited when you finally got a suspect, right? Oh, I'm, I think I might've nailed this. Right. From that point on, the detective is going to believe the evidence that confirms that. And he's going to discount the evidence that contradicts it. And this is human nature. You can fight it. You can be trained about it. You can have, a system set up to minimize that, which we largely do in the private sector. You know, somebody comes in in a company and says, hey, I got this great idea. I'm real excited about it. I'm going to open up 10 chains in Arizona. A company's not going to invest that kind of money without doing a lot of focus groups and devil's advocacy uh, and everything else. When a cop gets excited about a lead and says, I'm gung ho, boy, I'm going down this rabbit hole. There's in reality, what happens is everybody joins in good for you. Yeah. Go, go baby. And, um, and, and the, 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 the aspects of tunnel vision and all these flaws in the way we investigate cases, once that happens, 
are, are not put in check. They're not thought about. You know, I, I saw this in the in the prosecutor's office when we talked to each other about our cases, and we brought up weaknesses in the cases. It was not to have an objective discussion like you would have in a law school class about should we drop the charges. It was help me scheme how I can respond to that at trial. They're going to call a witness that says this. Let's brainstorm and come up with what my response to that's going to be. That was the only mentality. Yeah. Well, it also gets down, as you as you pointed out, and you mentioned this previously, and I think it's just massively important the junk science aspect of forensics, but the tunnel vision can even filter down to these supposed scientists. Sometimes that's a stretch uh, in terms of how they're being told to investigate a case. Yeah. You know what? I, this is one of the things, another thing that the public often doesn't understand because we've got these shows like CSI that hold up these forensics as, you know, this modern day miracle, like putting man on the moon. And I watched like a one minute of a CSI episode and it's where the scientist was looking through a telescope at a man's necktie and sees some spot of blood or something. And then she leans back in her chair and then in her head, she can picture exactly what happened. Right. And that just, I had to turn off the TV. Um, I, I can just give you one study to illustrate this. I talk about this quite a bit in the book, but um, confirmation bias and these filters I was talking about literally affects what we see. And if you have a pre-existing belief, it will limit what you see. And there's all sorts of things. And I have some experiments in the book you can do yourself to show this. But Etiel Drawer is a psychologist in London, um, studies confirmation bias and these filters. And um, he decided to do an experiment with fingerprint experts who had held themselves up as a rock solid science with zero error rate. And he went to fingerprint experts around the world, leading experts, and said, will you participate in this study? This is, I'm going to give you two fingerprints. One is the one taken at the police station by the defendant. The other one was from the bloody knife. And years ago, a fingerprint expert testified in court that this was a match. And that's what caused this defendant to be convicted. But we now know that he's actually innocent because DNA has proved someone else did it. And we know the fingerprint expert made a mistake. Will you look at these two fingerprints and show us where the fingerprint expert went wrong? Show us the discrepancies between these two fingerprints. What these fingerprint experts that were participating in the study did not realize, however, is that they were being lied to. And in reality, Etiel Drawer had gone into their jurisdiction and pulled out an exhibits of when they had testified in court that two fingerprints were a match. So this was not a wrongful conviction case. And they were looking at their own work and they did not realize they were looking at their own work. Of course, fingerprint experts look at fingerprints all day long. They're not going to remember a fingerprint they looked at the week before, not to mention 20 years earlier. And so now they're looking at two sets, two fingerprints that they personally had called a match in court. And they're being told this is from a wrongful conviction case. Show us the discrepancies. And 80% of the fingerprint experts came back and said, yeah, this is not a match. This fingerprint expert made a mistake. And then it's like, surprise, <laughs> this is your work, right? Um, it, it's, it's hard to sort of explain this to the audience unless they've sort of done these tests, which are in the book. And you start to understand when you are told something in advance, your brain will create filters to make your job easier. Um, so if you're given a pre-existing answer, which is what the police do, this is what I did as a prosecutor, dude, I would call up experts. Hey, trial starting Monday. We know the bullet came from this guy's gun. I can't say that. Where's the report? Finish the work. Get me the report that says that and come to testify on Tuesday. Right. So the, the experts are told before they even start, expect these two fingerprints to match, expect that the, the, the bullet's going to come from this gun, 
blah, 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 blah. And we now know that even though the fingerprint experts are trying to do a neutral job, they're trying to do the best job, they're not trying to slant things. The way the human brain works, that will, in some instances, slant the result and create a garbage in, garbage out outcome. This is very easy to fix, right? You just set it up blinded. They don't know the answer beforehand. And there's some jurisdictions like Scotland and places in Canada where they're starting to do that. Um, but the frustrating thing is that, you know, the criminal justice system is operating based in, on an understanding of the human mind, based on psychology from the 1950s at best. And um, be, because it's not the free market system or, you know, there, there's they have this unfettered power, um, there's no incentive to always try to catch up and, and adjust technologies and adjust procedures once we understand that it doesn't really account for how the human mind works. Um, and so the, the, the change is very, very slow. It's, it's always struck me as if you think about it, I feel like for longer than about 60 seconds, say bite mark analysis. Um, I don't think, so if you took me and like, I bit into a peanut butter sandwich like, perfectly or a piece of fried chicken, I, you know, per- I didn't tear, I didn't, it didn't move. I just perfectly put, you know, my indentation into it. I, I'm not sure that you could still get someone to scientifically verify whose teeth it was, you know, in something that clear. But then when people are uh, victims and they're struggling and all this stuff and stuff, and aside from the fact that criminals seem to bite a lot more than I would expect them to, um, which is a point that Radley Balco made in some of his work, um, it just seems obviously ascientific. So why is it still being used so much? Yeah, you're preaching to choir. And that's a good example of, of, how resistant the system is to change. I mean, you you can't defend it, and you can you know the the odd, odd dental odontology association, whatever it's called, the, the the trade union for all these forensic dental experts tried to do a um, a project <clears throat> several years ago to show that their work is actually valid, um, where they you know sent some samples to have their different members. Um, render opinions you know is it this person's teeth or is it this person's teeth and they all came back (laughs) disagreeing with each other showing how random and arbitrary it is and then they tried to not publish the results randy balco uh, radley balco talked about this in his article they tried to not publish the results and they said their own study was flawed and everything else it's like and the cases after case where you know a famous one is the so-called snaggletooth killer um out of arizona and where they they said that you know this guy's got really unique teeth. Um, they're really messed up and no one in the world could have made these bite marks, but him and DNA comes back later and proves not only that he's innocent, but somebody else committed the crime who didn't have teeth that looked anything like that. Um, you know, or the other cases where someone's convicted on alleged bite mark evidence where the, his teeth allegedly match. And it turns out that it was something completely different. Um, you know, they had some sort of, uh, clothing, thing that was snapping or, you know, that sort of thing that caused a bruise, um, are just the stories like that are just legion. Um, it's, you know, I've got a case now where the DNA has demonstrated from the bite mark that it's not him. The prosecutors said it at closing arguments at the original trial, they li- relied on bite mark evidence. And they said, it's too bad that the DNA technology is not advanced enough to do a DNA test in that bite because the perpetrator would have slobbered all over that that would be the best evidence. So years later, when we have the case and technology advances, we do DNA testing at the bite mark and there's a man's DNA there and it's not our client. And now this was a bite through a lab coat. It was a doctor that was killed. 
So they came back and they said, oh, that doesn't mean anything. Doctors wear their lab coats for a week or two at a time. You got clients sneezing on them. I'm sure that that lab coat had a million people's DNA on it. So we then go and DNA test something like 20 random spots on the lab coat. And there's no DNA anywhere else on the lab coat except the bite mark. Um, This person's still in prison because the judge said, well, you got this bite mark match, though. The expert years ago said that, uh, you know, it was his teeth. And we've got experts now saying that's complete junk and blah, 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 and DNA evidence. And they're still clean. The prosecutors are still saying that original bite mark testimony should keep him in prison. And the judge went along with it. It's just hard to wrap your mind around. What about the juries? I mean, you've you've tried cases. You've fielded juries. Um, these are normal people. Maybe they're a little you know, infected with CSI-itis or something like that in terms of forensic evidence, but they could listen to someone say, kind of like what I just said, you really believe that a bite mark can be matched if you couldn't even do it with, you know, a peanut butter sandwich. Um, Are they helpful in these situations? You know, I would take a jury over an elected state court judge almost every day. Um, As I already said, when I came back and started doing these innocence cases, the judges are pretty much prosecutors. Um, you know, I think at the trial stage, when someone's originally arrested, jurors often have a bias in favor of the prosecution. You know, why would we be here? Why would the police have arrested this guy? The presumption of innocence is, I mean, I, I think it, it's, there is a bias, but I, I don't think it's as bad in my opinion as most judges. Right. Um, I think that most people in the public are surprised to hear that. Um, what what I would like to see when we, years later, an innocence project takes a case after a guy's been in prison for 20 years and has evidence of innocence and has to go back to court to get the conviction thrown out. Boy, we'd triple the amount of wins we had if we could get in front of a jury. Um, you know, any of these cases that we have to go and fight for years and the the guy has to stay in prison or we sometimes lose and we have really strong evidence of innocence. Anybody you talk to, you know, the reporters will tell me off the record, this guy's totally innocent. You know, anybody objective can see what's going on. And you put any of these cases to a jury and we win them. Um, so, you know, I would, at least at the post-conviction stage, I, I would kill <laughs> to have juries decide the fate of our clients. Now, one of the interesting things in your experience, we, we have the forensic stuff. Um, it seems like the other really common source of wrongful convictions and a shockingly large amount where eyewitness testimony is the only essential evidence against someone. Um, but in that situation, it's the jury is supposed to watch the person testify, look them in the eye, you know, decide whether or not they're telling the truth. That's the best system we've yet come up with. Uh, we know lie detectors are you know bad at themselves. So, so, is that is that good enough for a conviction in those situations, uh, or is it too often mistaken? Well, I mean, I, I don't. <clears throat> I, it's a complicated answer. Um, you can't stop prosecuting crime just because all you have is a couple eyewitnesses. Um, but you know, we can do better. So there are procedures that will minimize the risk of a wrongful identification. Um, there are ways the jury can be informed to better evaluate the witness's testimony. Um, And, you know, if there's a murder that happens in broad daylight and three neutral witnesses saw the person and identify them, I'm not one that would say, well, you can't prosecute that case because all we've got is eyewitnesses, right? 
so two things have to happen or even one eyewitness even one eyewitness you can't say well you can't i don't think there should be a rule you can't convict someone on, on one eyewitness but we've we got to do the best job we can do and so you've got to have procedures that which are readily published and easy to understand verified scientifically over and over again that make that identification as good as it can possibly be and then the jury has to be given the the correct information to properly evaluate that testimony in most situations, we're not doing either one. So that's the first complaint. The second problem is, is that if evidence comes back 10, 15, 20 years later, suggesting that person's innocent, we have to have the humility and the open-mindedness to be like, look, we're all doing the best we can here. And we went forward doing the best we could with one eye- eyewitness. And we now recognize that maybe we were wrong. And let's objectively evaluate the situation. We're not doing that either. So the innocence projects are coming back to court in cases that had incredibly weak evidence where you look at that one eyewitness and everything wrong was done. You know, the answer was suggested to the eyewitness that, you know, I got case after case like this. And you look at that and you go, that identification almost means nothing. There's not really much to to believe this person committed the crime by modern standards. They, They didn't know that in 1984. When this guy was convicted, but now we can understand why this could easily be a misidentification. And now we've got all this other evidence of innocence. So let's be adults about it. Let's sit down and evaluate it objectively and decide what justice requires. Instead, you go back to court and the prosecutors go, this was the best eyewitness identification in the history of the world. This guy's totally guilty. You know, blah, 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 blah. There's just no justice. There's no objectivity. The adversarial system um, sort of this knee-jerk reaction of I'm just going to dig in and defend the conviction no matter what is the norm. If we're being honest, though, probably most people in jail are guilty. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I would say, I would say if, you know, the people that write to the Innocence Project, most people are guilty. Yeah, they have to have something to do in jail, I guess. <laughs> right, yeah. So the biggest, the biggest pie chart by far, if we had a pie chart, the biggest slice of it, of, of cases I've evaluated, are people that seem pretty clear they're guilty. I mean, I don't know. That might be 80%. I don't know what it is. Anecdotally, it's very high. Um, the other 20% are cases that they could be guilty or they could be innocent. And they start going down that conveyor belt further. And um, the, the so the next biggest slice of the pie chart is the evidence has been destroyed. The witnesses are dead. We see a lot of red flags in this case, but we can't finish the investigation because they didn't, they, they destroyed the DNA, the witnesses are dead, et cetera, et cetera. And some of those people are going to be innocent. Some percentage of those people are going to be innocent, but they're just unfortunate that they can't get DNA testing or other things like that. And then there's the smallest sliver in the pie chart is the ones that it seems pretty clear they're innocent. Um, it's not an insignificant number. I mean, I haven't done the math, but it's, in my opinion, two, three, four percent of uh, the people that write to us. Um, not insignificant. I mean, you know, I'll sit down with a team of, 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 so maybe a little bit higher than that, but I'll sit down with a team of two students that got 30 cases. Would not be uncommon to have two or three of those 30 that very, you know, this person either looks very strongly innocent or there's a very good chance. So what do we do? In reading your book, it just sort of 
reconfirmed a lot of beliefs that I had. See, this goes to confirmation bias about how kind of entrenched some of the <laughs> rot in the system is. And the actors just are lacking incentives to be better. Um, so when you're trying to come up, trying yeah, to come up with a way, way to fix it. this, this rot, it, it becomes a little daunting. I mean, I, do you have any winning ideas that w- w- can get us, move us along? Um, I don't have an idea that excites anyone, but it's the, it's the only idea. Um, and, and I think it will work, which is, I, you know, I see, I've been doing this. I'm one of the old people now in this movement. I've been doing it for 20 years. And so I see new people come in and start an innocence project in this state or that state, and they get burned out after two or three years. It's like, wow, this, nobody's changing. And, you know, da, 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 da. first of all, it is changing. It's changing very slowly, frustratingly slowly, but it is changing. Um, you know, when I first went to the legislature in 2003 and started talking about bills to reform these things, they looked at me like I had three heads. And now everybody knows what I'm talking about. We're getting bills passed. Um, it's changing very slowly. And I, I think the way to look at it is this is a decades long civil rights movement. And, you know, I look at how issues like LGBTQ, the culture has changed since I was in high school in the 1980s, um, where a kid in my speech class stood up and gave a speech, a hate filled speech and, and nothing happened. Right. Um, and you can't do that now, thank God. And, you know, we still have issues, but things have dramatically changed. And it's not like there was this one eureka moment where everybody said, oh, we've been looking at this wrong. It changed gradually over three, four decades from people yelling and screaming and educating. And, you know, silly as it sounds, things like Ellen and Will and Grace. And, you know, the, so I'm spending my time trying to get shows made and things like that because I'm seeing this as a cultural issue. Um. And it's slowly changing. And so what we've done is we now have what we call OIPU, U for undergrad. So like ESPNU is the college sports station. And we've got chapters at 12 colleges around Ohio of undergrad students who are meeting and putting on exhibits and demonstrations and awareness campaigns on their college campuses. Most people going to law school now, anywhere in the country, are learning about this stuff in law school. I mean, I, I, I teach this stuff in law school. And five years ago, it was the first time these kids are hearing any of this stuff. Now, most of them are hearing about it in undergrad. So I am, I'm seeing the change. And, you know, if you think about it, prosecutors, police, chiefs of police, these are people that cut their teeth in the 1990s. The people who are in power now, the, the Bill Clinton, Kamala Harris, mentality where they had to be complete hard asses. Those people are still in power, but the cultural change is happening. You know, you can't become somebody who's in their teens or twenties now and is in law school or recently out of law school is wiser and they've been educated differently. And I do think that if we continue this push, the cultural change will continue to happen. And when these people get into power decades from now or one or two decades from now it's going to be different and it's going to be the slow cultural slide like we like we've seen with like lgbtq issues or even marijuana i mean when i was in the 1980s i was in high school you know if you did marijuana it was a gateway drug and you're going to be hooked on heroin and everything within a couple of weeks now everybody realizes how silly that was and it's legalized in most places it's a slow gradual change of attitude that's how we've got to approach it. And and you've got to be ready to have this fight for the long haul. 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.